Well, listen, Easter's our day. Easter is our day, right? It's our day. It's impossible to overemphasize Easter. It's right at the core of the gospel. It's right at the very core, at the very center of everything God wants us to know and to understand. Uh, Jesus' resurrection means uh, two huge things. Number one, that we're forgiven. It's huge to be forgiven in the eyes of God. And number two, that there's life on the other side of the grave. Life on the other side of this life. Our lives are much bigger than the first hundred years or so that we might have here. There's all of eternity. And so the Bible comes right out in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 17. And the Bible just comes right out and says, listen, if Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is evaporated. If Christ didn't, if you could prove to me that Christ never rose from the dead, all of Christianity would collapse. It says it right here in the scriptures, right? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. It's in vain. There is nothing to Christianity without the resurrection. Would you agree with that? Would you say, hey, that's really true. Without the resurrection, we would never really know whether God accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in our place. We would always just have to wonder. You know, I wonder if that was sufficient. I wonder if that did it. I wonder if that got me uh, past uh, the penalty for my sins. And the, the second part of this verse says that, you know, if Christ isn't raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You still have the burden of all the offenses all the wrong thoughts that you've had before God uh, on your back. Um, What a terrible situation it would be if Christ had never come back from the dead. So the resurrection is not some like add-on doctrine, like I'm a Christian and I'm living a certain way, and uh, yeah, maybe Christ came back from the dead, maybe he didn't. No, it's absolutely essential. The 19th verse uh, in this particular passage of Scripture says this, If in this life only our hope is in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we think that this life is all there is, and we think that Christianity is just about getting through this life, and we don't understand that Jesus actually conquered death on our behalf and made a way for us to live eternally because the God we're here to worship this morning is a God who wants us to be with him around his table for all of eternity in a place called heaven. That's the God that we've come here to worship. And so what a great thing it is. The Bible goes on and says this in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, Adam, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You don't have a choice in it. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to him. What an exciting day that's going to be when Christ comes back, uh, who won our salvation and won our eternal life, comes back. Uh, The tomb on Easter Sunday morning is empty. The enemies are silent. Eyewitnesses saw Jesus on at least 10 different occasions after Easter Sunday morning. 
uh, ten different appearances, alive and well, after he was uh, dead on the cross. And Christians stopped worshiping on Saturday and started worshiping on Sunday to honor the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, of all the religious leaders who have come and gone over the years, if you think about it, of all these religious leaders who have claimed to come from God, you might ask the question, where are they? And I would suggest to you, they are still in their graves. Think about all the different religious leaders who have come and gone. Where are they? But where is Jesus? He's alive. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's the only one. He's unique. He was, in fact, God with us. And he could forgive sins, and he could defeat death, and he's coming again, the Bible tells us, to judge the world. Now, most religions, right, most religions contain a bit of truth. Most religions agree that our problems are basically internal. Uh, But most religions claim that the solution to our problems begins with us. If you take, for example, Buddhism or Hinduism, um, they would tell you that uh, meditation is the way to God. The way to build a bridge from where we are to God is through meditation and through contemplation and through becoming one with this, you know, God uh, spirit. Islam and Judaism would, on the other hand, tell you that the way to build a bridge to God is through good works is to uh, keep the law and to keep the traditions and uh, to honor the celebrations and so forth. And um, Judaism would tell us, you know, that this is the way that we build a bridge to God. Christianity, however, comes and tells us, you know what, our problem is bigger than that. The problem, according to Christianity, is that we have actually become dead in our trespasses and sins dead in trespasses and sins. The penalty that God imposed for offending him is death. And so we are uh, spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.10. And um, what we really need, because dead people can't really do much, what we really need is somebody to come and give us life, give us new life, spiritual life. That we can't really build a bridge from here to God, but God in Jesus has built a bridge from him to us. Radical difference of Christianity from every other religion in the world. Radical difference. Through Jesus, God has come to us to seek and to save us in our lostness. God has come to us. And so today, um, you know, we have, right, uh, we're probably pretty familiar with this, we have a number of um, social media platforms, right? We have uh, like Facebook and we have like Twitter and uh, we apparently have the freedom of speech uh, which is supposed to be practiced and protected and you can bring up just about anything you want on social media. You can go there and you can comment on just about anything You can comment on the environment, you can comment on the moral climate, you can talk about school curriculum, you can talk about politics, whatever you want to talk about, you just need to know that there will probably be others who will disagree with how you think and push back on you, okay? And that's what happens on social media. Well, back in biblical times, the Apostle Paul, one of the converts uh, to Jesus, 
The Apostle Paul um, visited a place called Athens in Greece, still there today. And uh, Paul didn't have any social media when he went there to Athens, but he found a very similar situation in Rome, uh, in Athens. Uh, Rome was sort of the political capital of the then known world, but Athens was kind of the intellectual capital, kind of the artistic place that people would come. Um, kind of the cultural center, kind of the uh, university-type city of Athens. And students and professors and various philosophers from even other countries would often find their way uh, to Athens. And there was a place there in Athens on the top of a hill where people were actually invited to come and to speak. And uh, it was called the Areopagus. And uh, there was kind of a committee there, as I understand it, who sort of questioned visiting people to sort of vet them to determine if what they had to say was worthy to get on the agenda. And so when Paul came to Athens, he was waiting for his friends there in Athens. He had a few weeks. And so he does what he always did. He first went to the synagogue of the Jews, and for three weeks he went and he started talking about Jesus. He started talking about the resurrection started talking about uh, what Jesus had done and who he was and where he came from and what difference he makes in a person's life and so forth. And so he began to do that at the temple, uh, at the synagogue, and then uh, he also went to the marketplace, you know, just where people shopped and where people hung out, and he started talking, uh, just randomly talking to people, and sooner or later he bumped into some of the philosophers who were in town, you know, to come to the Areopagus and so forth, and he started talking to them, and uh, some of the philosophers, they kind of called him a babbler. They, they called, you know, Paul, after talking to him, I don't, I don't know what this babbler is babbling about and so forth, but as a result of talking to those philosophers, he got an invitation to get vetted so that he could talk in the Areopagus. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, we have kind of the record of this, and I just want to read a few verses here, starting in the 18th verse. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who conversed with Paul and said about him, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign gods, foreign divinities, because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And uh, they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, and they said, may we know what this new teaching is that you're preaching. Uh, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I don't know about you, but every time I'm with somebody and I don't know what to say, I just say, so what's new, right? <laughs> do you ever do that? You know, just what's new? And so here's a whole town that's sort of dedicated to just let's all get together and talk about what's new. And so that's what they did. And so in the few weeks that Paul had been there uh, prior to this, he's kind of walking around. He's noticing what's going on. And he notices the whole place is full of idols. There's idols everywhere. And uh, he even found uh, some idols that were actually dedicated to an unknown God, right? And uh, it turns out about 600 years before Paul got there, uh, there was a, uh, a plague, uh, uh, 
a terrible plague. Lots of people died. And uh, the people prayed to their gods, but nothing changed. And uh, eventually, uh, for whatever reason, they let sheep go in the streets. And uh, the sheep, they thought, you know, would have a connection to God, some God. And uh, wherever the sheep laid down, they would build an idol because they thought somehow God is communicating to that sheep because they laid there and maybe they're close to their God or whatever. And so they'd build an idol there. And so all over, uh, there were these idols and many of them were dedicated to an unknown God. Who knows what God a sheep worships? I don't know. Uh, But that's why they were all there. And um, so Paul observes this and notices this And he says, you know, about these people, this is a very religious place, Athens. There's a lot of people who have a lot of ideas about God. Very religious. Lots of idols. And then you got all these philosophers with their own ideas coming from all different places. And uh, and then there's Paul. And so what Paul does is he decides to try and use these uh, idols that are dedicated to unknown gods to explain to people the true God and introduce people to the one true God. So in verse 24 and 25, here's what we read. Paul is explaining to the people, uh, here's what he says, what you therefore worship as unknown, let me proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is this God served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul says, let me tell you about the God that you don't know. Let me tell you, he's the God who created everything, including us. And he's the God from whom every good thing in our life flows into our lives. Everything comes from God, and God always goes first. He always initiates, and we get to respond. God doesn't need anything from us. Uh, He goes on here in um, verse 28 and 29. It says, for in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. We might not know it. We might not acknowledge it, but we live and move and have our being. We get our breath. We get our life from the God who created us. And at some point, it runs out. Uh, Nothing we can do about it. And he says, in him we live and move and we have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So uh, Paul is, you know, talking back to some of these people. And then he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, some image formed by the art and imagination of man. We ought not to think that God is like all of these idols. You know, no, he is not. We don't have to speculate about what God is like. He has revealed himself to us. He has made himself known. Anybody that wants to can know God. He's not a projection of our thoughts. Uh, He's the guy who made himself knowable through creation, uh, through his word. Remember, we've been studying Moses and how Uh, God gave Moses his word for the first five books of the Bible, and Moses wrote it down so that we could have it and so forth. We can know where we came from, what our beginning was. And God has made himself known especially through his son. Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the past God gave people dreams and this and that, but in these last days God has revealed himself through his son, Jesus Christ. 
And finally, God has made himself known by his spirit. He has sent his spirit into the world so that anybody who wants to know uh, the truth about God can be helped by God himself uh, to be able to understand the scriptures and to understand this God who has made himself known. Now, here's something I think we all need to know about God, okay? He's forgiving. He's forgiving. Uh, The next verse here, verse 30 in Acts chapter 17, here's what Paul is still talking to Areopagus, and he said, listen to this, the times of ignorance God overlooked. God is forgiving. God doesn't really care about what you did in your past before you knew him. God doesn't really care about, you know, when you were a teenager and a knucklehead and you did X, Y, Z. God doesn't really care. He's not looking to hold that against anybody. You know what God cares about? God cares about what are you going to do with my son, my only begotten son whom I put on the cross so that you could be forgiven and so that you could live with me in, in heaven for all of eternity. That's what God's concerned about. And he goes on in this verse. He says, you know, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now, on this side of the resurrection, he commands all people everywhere, and I think that includes all of us, all people everywhere to repent. I don't really care what happened in the past. But now that I've sent my son and I've brought him back to life, now, I command, God says, you to repent. Um, God is forgiving, but he's also demanding. God is full of grace. Grace is undeserved favor, right? But he's also full of truth. And God insists that we buy into and embrace the truth that God has revealed to us. And so God has communicated to anybody willing to listen uh, through an empty tomb. And uh, through that life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus, through the gospel, which is simply the death and resurrection of Jesus in our place, uh, God is calling on all people everywhere to repent. To repent. To repent is to embrace a radical change. You heard Pastor John say, you know, the gospel changes everything. To repent is to embrace that change. To repent is to change our direction in life. It's a radical change of direction. It's a transformation of our thoughts, our attitude, our worldview, our own personal living. It's a, a total, it's like a whole new life. It's almost like being born all over again, right? It's a 180 degree turn from self to God. It's going from being a a me-first person to a God-first person. God said, hey, I made you for me. I made you for me. I desire a relationship with you. You have to stop thinking that you're the center of the world and understand that I'm the center of the world and that I've got a great future plan for you and that I love you and that you have the opportunity to embrace my truth. It's turning from deadness to life. To repent creates an ongoing uh, revolution inside of us. It's, again, like being born all over again. It's turning from darkness and ignorance to light and truth. It's living from the inside out instead of the outside in. 
Uh, Paul's speech here in Athens gets right to the point. It's about the resurrection. It's about the empty tomb. What are you going to do about it? And um, the Bible, you know, invites us to focus on the resurrection, especially on Easter Sunday. The verification of everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did is in the resurrection. Again, if Christ did not come back from the dead, our faith is useless. Our faith collapses. All of Christianity collapses. There have been people uh, down through history who have taken that literally and said, I'm going to prove that Jesus never came back from the dead. And they've gotten converted as they tried to prove that Jesus never came back from the dead. And so, um, you know, I think this started right back in the very beginning uh, on the first Easter. Uh, I can read for you uh, a couple of verses from Matthew chapter 27. And um, here's what happened. Um, Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, uh, gathered together before Pilate, the Roman governor uh, at the time, and they said, Sir, um, we remember how that imposter, Jesus, while he was still alive, said this, After three days, I'm going to rise. And so, therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard. Gives them a battalion of soldiers. Uh, Go and make the grave as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and by setting a guard. And so they did everything they could to stop uh, Jesus from... uh, coming back from the dead but on that first Easter Sunday morning it was pointless because uh, all the soldiers fainted the angel came down there was an earthquake the stone rolled away Uh, Jesus was resurrected and so forth and uh, you know once you hear about the resurrection uh, you have to decide what you're going to do with it once you hear that Jesus came back from the dead You have to decide, what are you going to do with it? And I want to suggest to you that back again in the Areopagus in Athens, in um, Acts chapter 17, uh, the people who were listening, here's here's what happened. There's three options that you have when you hear that Jesus came back from the dead, okay? Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some mocked. Some said, (laughs) yeah, right. Back from the dead. What a fantasy that is. Never heard of such a thing. Impossible. Ridiculous. Some mocked. Okay. Others said, uh, we'll hear you about this some other time. Later. Later. I'm busy. Right? I'm going on vacation. I got to fertilize the grass. I got things to do. We'll put it off. And we'll talk about it some other day, okay? And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Some people believed. And among them was Dionysus the Areopagite, one of the guys on the committee, (laughs) right? Areopagus, Areopagite. And a woman named Demarius and others with them. 
So there was a crowd of people who believed what Paul was saying, believed in Jesus. And so I just wanted to kind of invite you to think about this. Um, What's your response to Easter? What's your response? Do you say to yourself, well, yeah, right, you know, uh, that's ridiculous. People don't come back from the dead. Uh, I've been to many funerals, many cemeteries, and it just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And uh, I'm not going to investigate it. I'm not going to read the Bible. I'm not going to invite God to speak to me on a personal level. I'm just going to mock the whole thing. I'm just going to say, yeah, right, and I'm going to move on, and I'm going to live as if Jesus is still dead. I'm going to just pretend that I never heard that ridiculous babbling Paul, you know. And again, I think it started on Easter Sunday morning. The angel came down, the stone was rolled away, uh, Jesus was resurrected, but when the soldiers uh, came back from being fainted, uh, they went to tell the priests and the elders and so forth. And uh, in Matthew 28, let me just uh, read a couple of verses there, just to reiterate this, in Matthew 28 and verse uh, 12, uh, when they had assembled, all the elders and the Pharisees and the leaders uh, in Jerusalem, and uh, they had taken counsel, uh, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. And they said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, to Pilate's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so the soldiers took the money and did as they were directed, and the story has been spread among the Jews to this very day. Take the money and run. Begin to live a lie. Mock the resurrection, pretend it never happened, and begin to live a lie. That's what the soldiers and the Pharisees, the leaders, did. The second response, you know, uh, verse 32 says, you know, I just don't want to deal with this now. I'm busy living my life. And um, now, you know, some people take time to process. Some people, uh, you know, I do need to have a little time. I need to think about this. This would change my whole life. I think these people recognize, you know, there are implications. If I choose to believe that Jesus actually came from the dead, that I'm going to live forever in a place called heaven, that Jesus actually died for my sins on the cross, I realize that's going to have some implications in my life. I'm going to have to worship him. I'm going to have to be thankful to him. I'm going to have to find out what his will is for my life. I'm going to have to put him first instead of me being first. And, you know, there are some implications. So I I really need to think this through. And there are some people who are like that who need time to think. You might remember uh, one of Jesus' followers, Thomas. You remember Thomas? And um, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first showed himself to the other disciples. And so uh, the other disciples uh, told Thomas that they had seen Jesus alive. And in uh, John chapter 20 and verse 25, uh, this is what Thomas said. The other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas, right? So. Eight days later, eight days later, a week later, um, the disciples were inside again, and this time Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. 
and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen. That would be all of us. And still believed, right? So there are some people, they need time to kind of process and to think it through. And Thomas was one of them. But I would tell you, if you're sincere about wanting to know if all this is true, God will come to you like he came to Thomas in the person of his spirit and enable us to be able to understand the truths that he's revealed through his son, through his word, and especially by his spirit. God will come to us. Uh, Jeremiah, you might remember uh, old Jeremiah in the Old Testament said, uh, God said to him, you know, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Anybody who really wants to know the truth about God can know because God will come just like God came to Thomas and uh, enabled him to believe. But lots of people choose to live their whole life, you know, as a doubter. A lot of people go through their whole life saying, I'll think about this later, some other day. Uh, because they realize, you know, there are some implications. And so um, some people said, yeah, right. Some people said later. But the third group of people said, I believe. And uh, I want to suggest to you this morning that to believe, to believe is more than just giving intellectual assent. Right? It's more than just intellectually saying, well, you know, maybe that really did happen. I don't know. Uh, maybe that's a point to consider, to think about. No. Uh, to believe is to be personally leaning on the truth that's represented, that you believe. To believe is personal, right? It's where we establish a relationship with God who sent Jesus to establish that relationship for us. To believe... Uh, is more than to recognize this is some religious controversy, the resurrection, a point to consider. To believe is to be convinced. I am convinced that that tomb was empty on the first Easter Sunday because God accepted Jesus' uh, suffering and, and sacrifice for us on the cross. Um, and then I would say to you that uh, God, through the empty tomb, is calling all of us to repent. Uh, to change our direction, to change our thoughts, to enter into that revolutionary new life. Uh, the gospel does change everything. Stop living as if Jesus were still in the tomb and uh, talk to him and listen to him. The Bible claims to be a living book. God claims to speak to us through this book, and he will if we will only listen. And so the empty tomb is a challenge to us. It's an invitation to us. I think it means this. Either we will know and come to love Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior in this life, or we will meet him in the life to come as our judge. Because he has commanded all people everywhere to repent in response to what his son has done for us. Again, God doesn't really care what you've done in your past, right? Times of ignorance, you know, we've all done stuff that we're ashamed of and that, you know, it's all forgiven. It's why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus put all that, God put all that stuff on Jesus' back on the cross and crucified him in our place. So it's gone. It's all gone. 
God doesn't really care about what we've done in our ignorance. But what God really cares about is that we would, from this point forward, repent, change, change the direction of our life, stop being a me-first person, and become a God-first person in response to all that God has done to us, especially through the empty tomb. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, it's hard for us to even fathom a God who actually loves us to the point of suffering himself. I think we know, Father, that there's no way that any human being could ever build a bridge to God. We could never be good enough. We could never satisfy uh, the requirements of a holy God. You made us to be like yourself, and we're not. We're not like you. We've fallen short of what you've made us to be. And we acknowledge before you this morning, Father, we need you to build the bridge toward us. We need you to come to us, and you did. You came in the person of your son, Jesus. And you offer us salvation. You offer us eternal life. You offer us forgiveness for all the ridiculous things that we did and our wrong way of thinking over the years and all the rest. It doesn't matter. What matters is what we do with your son that you gave us so richly and freely. And we thank you, Father, for the privilege of worshiping you through him this morning. And through the empty tomb, we just acknowledge that your love for us has no limits and no boundaries. May we love you back in return with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.